Oregon joke. Um, thanks for coming. Your, your showing up supports the monastery, and hopefully the monastery supports you, and that you, you find this a reciprocal relationship. Uh, monasteries are many things to many people. You might think there's one monastery. We tend to think there's the monastery, but everybody's got their own, their own monastery uh, and what it is to them and what they see. Uh, but one, one function and gift is that a monastery is a place that, that celebrates and nurtures and gives a particular space for matters of the heart to be explored. Matters of the heart. I wanted to use the word spiritual matters, but that's, that's a phrase I'm not so comfortable with. Matters of the heart. Um, questions of meaning and questions of purpose. The question of who am I uh, as far as what's my, what's my function and role in society. And the question of what am I and what is the world? What is this awareness at a more fundamental level? Questions about the nature of being. So there's a philosopher, Ken Wilber, who I think is, is worth reading. And sometimes he talks about religions having uh, two functions. Uh, one function is called translative, and the other is called transformative. And so translative means that we are offered teachings that describe what's going on in this human life. We're given some explanation of why things are the way they are to help just make sense of it and put us at ease and um, give some larger narrative to buoy us up and, and provide meaning. Helps us make sense of birth and death and life and loss. And every culture has had some narrative, some, some view, some vision of what, what is actually happening. And uh, spiritual teachings do the same thing. You know, for example, one that you might have heard is that what we are is spiritual beings having a human experience. And that what, uh, why we're in these bodies and all the earthly troubles, is to learn how to grow in love. And so then everything that we experience, and all the difficulties we go through, all the relationships and the conflicts, and the, the, all of that we can see as a training ground for the heart. And that vision alone changes um, the experience. It can change the way we, we relate to those very challenges. So now, transformation is the other function he talks about. And as you can see, they're already not really separate. So if I have the view that my life is a training ground for learning to love, then that's already transformative if I really take that on. But the thing about uh, transformational offerings from spiritual traditions or religions is that they give us technology. They give us ways to actually have a change of heart. Because part of the vision they have is that it is possible to um, evolve. And that it's actually one of the primary tasks of a human life is to intentionally evolve. 
So they work in uh, unison, ideally, translative and transformative. So a teaching I find interesting to contemplate, um, one of the one particular teaching from the Sufi tradition, which is the contemplative branch of Islam. It says that human beings have three natures. Uh, and they're not ultimately separate, but it's helpful to tease them apart. So there's an instinctual or an animal nature in all of us. There's an individual or a personality drive or nature. And there's a spiritual nature. And that part of the uh, spiritual life is, is bringing these into balance. And maybe we only know our animal nature or instinctual nature to some degree, our personality to some degree. We don't even know the spiritual nature. So we're given that uh, context and told that all three of these are forces acting on the individual. So for example, right now, you might be aware of your body's call for more comfort. Exactly. That was your instinctual nature acting. Pain, got to change it. Right? Or you might be aware of your stomach gurgling. And these sensations and your instinctual nature interprets that as hunger. And you've got to take care of this body. And so it has its, its communications. You might also uh, right now be aware of conscious of social dynamics. So you're wanting to be in harmony with the group. And so maybe... Maybe you are hungry, or maybe you are uncomfortable, and if no one was around, you would just kind of kick back, you know, with your, with your hands behind your head. Or you would pull out a, a box of crackers and start eating right now. But because the social nature, the, the, the personality nature is a force acting on you, that, that drive is you're not doing that. You're, you're enacting harmony in some way or another. And yet, so let's say that both of those are going on for some of us. It often is for me during these kind of talks. I'm like hungry, I'm uncomfortable. I'm not just, you know, getting up and leaving the room if I'm bored, right? So there's the instinctual and the social acting. But at the same time, I'm interested in what's being taught here, or else I wouldn't be here. I'm interested in being in a, in a zendo because the spiritual nature calls to me. It has, it has a force. It has an a, a attraction. So these all might be going on for you right now. You might be aware of your spiritual nature itself, that in the midst of your discomfort and your um, social awarenesses, that there's something in you that is just kind of peaceful and, and vibrating silently. And that's there no matter what else is happening. So in this uh, example of the three natures, in this tradition, we're told uh, what's going on in our inner dynamic. Some, some teachings to clarify what, did, what, is, what is happening in my being, and that's helpful. And we're also given a map of what's possible. We're told that, yes, there's your instinctual nature and your social, personal nature, but there's also something more. And then together with that, there's method. Method is offered. So in the Sufi tradition, for example, um, there's meditations to disengage from the instinctual mind and rest in inner silence. It's a lot of harmony with um, the Zen teachings. 
that you rest in inner silence. And from that as the ground, there's a possibility of discovering, oh, there is such a thing as a spiritual nature. This is uh, a poem from Rumi, who's in that tradition. This poem is called Some Kiss. There is some kiss we want with our whole lives, the touch of spirit on the body. Seawater begs the pearl to break its shell, and the lily how passionately it needs some wild darling. At night, I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me. Close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door, only the window. I like that a lot. To me, that's a lot more inviting than like sit down, shut up, and pay attention. Close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door, only the window. So I want to uh, contemplate with you part of a, a teaching prayer from the Rinzai Zen Buddhist lineage, which is uh, part of the, the heritage of this place. And we were studying uh, some of these uh, teachings of this lineage this weekend with um, a group of seniors and leaders in the community. We all came together, and for a couple days, we were looking at a particular text. And this is actually something that we chant. Um, I think we chant this one. The vow for awakening we chant on Sunday mornings. Is that correct? Yeah. We chant this one. Actually, it would be really nice if we could um, recite it together. Can chant books be passed out? Or passed down, at least? You can just pass a stack down. So um, page 52, and we'll do just page 52. We'll read through that. And so this is an example of how translative and transformative are offered together. So we'll just, we'll just um, let's read through it. Vow for awakening. Our deepest prayer is to be firm in our determination to give ourselves completely to the Buddha's way so that no doubts arise however long the road seems to be, to be light and easy in the four parts of the body, to be strong and undismayed in body and in mind, to be free from illness and drive out both depressed feelings and distractions, to be free from calamity, misfortune, harmful influences and obstructions, not to seek the truth outside of ourselves, so we may instantly enter the right way, to be unattached to all thoughts, that we may reach the perfectly clear bright mind of prajna and have immediate enlightenment on the great matter. Thereby we receive the transmission of the deep wisdom of the Buddhas to save all sentient beings who suffer in the round of birth and death. In this way, we offer our gratitude for the compassion of the Buddhas and ancestors. So we'll stop, we'll stop there. 
So I want to I want to contemplate this with you a little bit. So it says, our deepest prayer is to be firm in our determination to give ourselves completely to the Buddha's way. So what is your deepest prayer? Think, think in your mind, what is your deepest prayer? There's something trustworthy about first thought, best thought. What's the first thing that comes up? Before, no, 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 that's not deep enough. What's your deepest prayer? What's your, what's your deepest, um, let's say, wish? Because prayer can mean different things. What's your deepest wish or your deepest vow? And is that the deepest one? Do we each have different deepest prayers? So this text is saying our deepest prayer speaking to a a room full of practitioners, but is that universal? Do we all each have a deepest prayer at the core? Do we all have the same deepest prayer and that we just give it different words? So are we simply, um, are we simply looking at different faces of the same jewel? What's the deepest prayer? Sometimes I might think that my deepest prayer is for Kirsten Dunst to come to Sunday program. Anyone know who Kirsten Dunst is? No. <laughs> Sometimes I think that's my deepest prayer. Feels very, it's, it's very heartfelt. But is that my deepest prayer? So this text is suggesting that awakening is our deepest prayer. suggesting that, that uh, knowing what we truly are at bottom, knowing the core of our being is the deepest prayer of everybody. Is that true? So awakening, there's, there's much offered to us in books and mouths about what that is. I mean, in a, every, every tradition has its own books. This is a whole marvelous book about Rumi saying what awakening is from many different angles. But for you, what is awakening? Let's say you agree that awakening is my deepest prayer, but what are you awakening from? I want to open the floor, and you could just kind of pop any. If you have the wish to awaken, what do you wish to awaken from? Okay, say my delusion. You wish to awaken from your delusion. Okay, all right, fair enough, right? What else? Okay. Become aware. Okay. So you want to be awakened from unawareness. Okay. What are we awakening from? False views. It's a very personal question. Like I don't, I don't have an official answer. from existential tension. Anyone else? 
somewhere. Okay, yeah, there you are. And that could be an unwholesome habit of body, speech, or mind. That could be existential tension. Could be lack of awareness. Yeah. But that's particular for each of us. You know. Like before I was writing this, I like I was practicing being awakened from any concern about how it would go. fall asleep in that in that thought pattern or I can fall asleep in that worry. And then I and so this awakening is very particular in each moment. So this this teaching says that there is a core dimension of our being that holds this work of awakening and it manifests in it's it's granular. It has a particularity for each of us at different times. But this teaching says that there is a core aspect of us. I don't want to sound like it's something in there, but there is some core impulse that holds this awakening as most crucial, most beloved in our lives. So here's another um, just contemplation. Suppose all of your instinctual needs were met. You're safe. You really felt that you were safe. You're fed. You had home, shelter, and security taken care of. Let's say those were all met, okay? And let's say that the social motivations that tend to arise from uh, competition and comparison and living in the shadows of others or our own ideals, let's say all of that fell away, okay? So you're healthy and safe, and also all the stuff that's about kind of wanting to get ahead of others or or be somebody in, in, a, in opposition to somebody else not being somebody, if all that fell away, if that was lifted off like a shroud, then what would be called out of you? Well, then, then what would be, um, what would the inclination be? What remains when the, the, the instinctual energies are pacified or upgraded, the personal energies are mellow or upgraded, what remains then? That's part of the, the investigation. So the um, next number of lines talk about all kinds of um, conditions. The first condition it talks about is, is doubt. It says, Give ourselves completely so that no doubts arise, however long the road seems to be. My first thought was, good luck with that one. Actually, I wouldn't wish no doubt on you. Um, if, even, if I, even if I could grant you such an experience. Maybe for moments at a time, but especially, especially as we're orienting to this practice and finding our seat, doubt is exactly how we clarify all the questions that rise up are how we make this teaching uh, personal. But, but the connection between a full immersion in our life's texture and basic faith is pointed at. So when is it that doubts arise? When is it in your life that doubts arise? What are the conditions that are present when dissatisfaction comes in? What's going on at those times? 
when doubts and, and dissatisfactions come in, are you immersed in the living texture of your life? Are you, are you immersed or are you reflecting and assessing? Are you plotting against the living texture of your life? One of the, one of the things that seems to be said here is that when we're giving ourselves completely to the Buddha's way, which is our life, when we're fully immersed, then that immersion doesn't leave room for the mind that steps back and says, this is right, this is wrong, no good. There's a sense that when we're wholeheartedly engaged, um, the discriminating function is not even relevant. Because that intimacy is, is fulfilling. That intimacy doesn't leave room for doubt. But does that seem true to you? You can't not reflect on your life with intelligence, right? can't be that the teachings are suggesting that you live a life without um, reflection, without intelligence. If that was what the path would be, that would be just really our instinctual nature. You know, just like an animal going about their business without the ability to actually uh, have any perspective on what's happening. And just be kind of going through the motions. So in this, in this passage, I think we're already uh, presented with uh, some of the key methods of transformation in our Zen tradition. First key method is full immersion in the moment. Full immersion in the moment. There's many techniques of meditation, many methods, but actually as you get to the more so-called advanced teachings, it's, if it could be called a practice, it is um, an unconditioned immersion in the moment. Being in this moment without the slightest interference with its display, simplicity. So to give ourselves completely, is that, is that. To give yourself completely to sitting, to give yourself completely to eating, to give yourself completely to listening, to speaking. At the same time, we have inquiry. We have inquiry because... Although it says no doubts arise, obviously doubts are going to arise. And this teacher knows that doubting is part of the path. Doubting not in a sense of um, just skeptical closing of one's mind, but what is, what is really true about these teachings and how are they true? So inquiry. Inquiry is the, the general spirit of what is this? Of what is this? What is this doubt? As I said, it's a really interesting question for me, but when I fall into doubt, and sometimes I can only do this in hindsight, what were the conditions in which I moved into doubt? What were the conditions in which I'm not resonant with my faith? Because I might mistake those conditions triggering me into a place of doubt for the doubt itself. Inquiry is not just about, about um, times that are difficult, but what is this joy? If I find myself in a time of ease in my life or a time of fulfillment, an instinctual way of being would be just to kind of plod along and not really think about it. But inquiry says, what, what, what are these conditions? How is it that what's going right? What's working? What elements are present that I have found myself in a place of balance? 
It's to use my intelligence to really get clear on that, to learn from both the, the challenging and the, the easeful. More fundamental inquiry, which this text will get to, is what is experiencing this anyway? What is it that goes through these oscillations of happiness and sadness? Happiness and sadness. Things are good, things are bad. Just like the human, the human story. There's a poem by uh, Jane Hirschfield, a very short poem that I really love. And it's at the end of one of her, her long works. And, she, and one of the lines that sticks with me, she says, it was like this. Sometimes you were happy, sometimes you were sad. Sometimes there was potato soup, sometimes there was brisket. It was like this. What ways do I slide into alienation from myself? When we look, look into conditions and the flow of conditions and really get smart about them. So the text continues listing all of the challenges of living in an interconnected, dependently arising, always fluxing world. And what that means is that there, there is some kind of maybe like childhood level fantasy that somehow we can have a life that's all pleasure. Or somehow we can have a life that's all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. But a dependently in, uh, fluxing world means that the good comes with the bad. That up has to include down. You can't, they, there's no way for there to be um, some kind of one-sided immersion in one quality without the other side rising up. It's like a, te it's like a uh, what's it called, the teeter-totter? Teeter-totter. I haven't said that in like 20 years. It's like a teeter-totter. And we might be experiencing joy in someone else's pain, and that's how the teeter-totter is manifesting. Sometimes it's like that. We might be experiencing wealth while other people are experiencing poverty. They're interdependent. Abundance and paucity are interdependent. Or it might be in my own stream of mind that I have good days, I have bad days, and they created each other. No such thing as a good day if I've never been in the dumps. It would be meaningless. It wouldn't, it wouldn't even, its contour for us wouldn't even appear. You know what I mean? If you didn't have really shitty days, the joy of a day going well and the beauty of a harmoniously flowing experience, it wouldn't even be able to be experienced because there'd be nothing to contrast it against. So we pray for these things. I always found that strange, that you pray for something impossible. Our deepest prayer includes being light and easy in the four parts of the body, good luck, being strong and undismayed, don't bother trying, to be free from illness and drive out both depressed feelings. No one's ever done that. To be free from calamity, misfortune, and harmful influences. That sounds like a fantasy. But we pray for that. What's that about? We're not going to magically be freed from the vagaries of existence just because we like, can like, reverently ask the Buddha, please help me not have a human life. I think... This prayer is here to appreciate the moments that we do have to practice. And to appreciate that the moments we do have to practice include these ups and downs that completely create each other. Um, it, it continues um, to be free from calamity, misfortune, harmful influences, and obstructions, not to seek the truth outside of ourselves so we may instantly enter the right way. 
there's a little bit of a recipe here. Not to seek the truth outside of ourselves, which includes calamity, misfortune, depression, ups and downs, so we may instantly enter the right way. You know, there's a, there's a sense, or there's, a, there's a, a reality in this practice that when we apply immersion and inquiry, at that moment, we actualize freedom. At that moment, we are the Buddha's way. And Dogen Zenji said, practice and realization are one. You could say practice and release are one. The moment we, we accept, and not just a passive um, submission to our lives, but we accept the texture of this moment, and we look into it, so accept it in a wakeful way, that's a kind of freedom. That's a, that's a redemption of that very same texture that one could be burdened by or one could be in opposition to. So we have a change of heart by not seeking truth outside of ourselves, but being, being fully immersed in the difficulties that arise up or the ease that rises up or whatever it is. I found that's actually hard for me to be happy for very long without getting suspicious of it. Like when things are going really well in my life, I subtly sabotage it. I don't know if that's common. I see a couple smiles. Or what happens is I know that it can't really last forever. I know that up includes down. And so there's this little part in the back of my mind that goes, okay, don't get too comfortable here. So the, um, the prayer continues. So we, may be instantly, so we may instantly enter the right way. Our deepest prayer is to be unattached to all thoughts that we may reach the perfectly clear bright mind of prajna and have immediate enlightenment on the great matter. To be unattached to all thoughts that may we reach the perfectly clear bright heart of prajna. Maybe that's equivalent to what the Sufis mean by the spiritual nature. So this is, a, this is an aspiration. I aspire... I incline towards this way of being, to be unattached to all thoughts. Um, recently, two phrases came to me that, that I think are, um, that I want to start using. Uh, one is disadhere, and the other is remagic. That when you disadhere from your thoughts, your life is remagicked, or the life of life can actually um, display itself because the interference that's normally running is not there in the same way. So the first point I believe he's making is that, um, first of all, we can disadhere from our, uh, our stories. And we have our making sense of ourselves. We have our place in the world and what happens to us, and that's not something to be eradicated. And that making sense of ourselves and who we are and our place in the world and what matters happens through our thinking minds. That's, that's the only medium of meaning. The medium of meaning is language. The medium of thought is words. So you can't, you can't kill that, but you can disadhere. You can, you can touch into a larger context, the perfectly clear, bright mind of, of prajna. So our personal story is not the whole story. It's like a chapter. It's not the whole story. 
wind down here. I was experimenting with having a talk that really was only 40 minutes long. So, now please have faith in this perfectly clear, bright mind of prajna. It's both something um, really profound to immerse ourselves in. It's an ordinary sacredness that is our nature. And it's just, it's just right here. It's so basic. It's just screened out by exclusively reading the book of our, our self. So please, please have confidence in these, um, in these methods. The prayer ends saying, um, we have immediate enlightenment on the great matter, recognizing the heart mind of prajna, and we receive the transmission of the deep wisdom of the Buddhas to save all sentient beings who suffer in the round of birth and death. And then that's the koan we live into as we taste the medicine of this practice. We know that this is healing at a very deep level. Even, even one moment of perfectly clear, bright mind, or even one moment of disadhering, kind of takes a, a quark out of our suffering. Pulls an iota, at least, out of our, our fixed construction of the world. And the more we disadhere, and the more we rest, the more bits and pieces of the construction of a suffering person are removed. And then the story can be, can be reworked and revisioned. And they say um, what comes forth is, is appreciation. What comes forth is some impulse to share that very same uh, vision. So characteristic of Zen is not to swallow doctrine, but to uh, inquire for yourself. So thank you for, for coming and doing this work together. Okay,